Hebrews chapter 12. Now, while there is mystery about the author of Hebrews, some have argued everything from Paul to Priscilla <laughs> and everything in between. And uh, there, there may be mystery about the author, but there's no mystery about the content. And the content of the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews to encourage them not to look back to the Old Covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is careful to point out that Jesus is superior to angels. He's superior to the priests of the Old Covenant. He's superior to the Old Covenant itself. There is a better covenant and it's found in Jesus Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer contrasts two mountains found um, in the Old Testament, and we're going to be looking at those tonight. And here they are listed in verse 18 of Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12:18. And before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your holiness, your awesomeness, all that you are, Father, and yet you're condescending to come to this world in the person of Jesus Christ to love us into your kingdom and to make us holy, to make us a kingdom of priests unto our God. And we're so grateful to be that, Lord, tonight, but we know it's all of you, all of your work through the better covenant, which is found in Jesus Christ. The old covenant uh, with the laws and ordinances that was against us really could, we could not keep those laws, Lord. But they were a mediator. They were... Uh, More than that, they were a schoolmaster, I should say, to bring us to Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that um, as we look at the law contrasted with your grace tonight, that we'll still understand that you are a holy God who took the punishment for us, who brought us to the mountain of mercy so that we could receive grace and help in our time of need, that we could be holy and blameless before you. And yet, Father, what we are by position, we want to be practically We know you call us to be holy, for you are holy. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that as we look at this great subject of uh, Exodus 19, that you'll bless our time, give us wisdom and knowledge, guide us by your spirit, teach us marvelous marvelous things from your word, and bless us because we've been here tonight, as the song says, in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 12, 18 says, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words should be spoken to them. Verse 20. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it, verse 25, that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, 
But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, verse 27, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, oh, what a key word, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service, note this, with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The writer of Hebrews, um, as he goes through his treatise in this letter, is quick to point out the superiority of Jesus Christ to the Old Covenant. And as we see in this particular treatise, what we see is two mountains contrasted. Mount Sinai, the Mount of Law, which is referred to, and we're going to see in the book of Exodus, direct reference back to that, and Mount Zion, which is the Mountain of Mercy. Two mountains contrasted. Now, if you want to try to approach God on Sinai, you're going to have a tough time crossing the barrier because we are sinful. And in the presence of a holy God, we would be consumed in our sinful condition. But because of Mount Zion, because of the mountain of mercy, that is because our great mediator, Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for us and, and shed his blood at the cross. Now we can approach God and we can come into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus, by that new and living way, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, which he inaugurated through the veil of his flesh. We don't have to fear. We can come to God We come in reverential awe, but we still come to God. We come as beloved sons and daughters of the king. But that does not change the holiness of God, and it does not change the fact that God had to make the way because we could not cross the barrier. Now, if you want, turn to, uh, before we get to the Exodus account, turn to Deuteronomy as... uh, you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the last of Moses' books, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Moses is going to describe for us some of the things um, that he encourages uh, before the crossing of the people of Israel, crossing of the Jordan into the promised land. And he's going to say some things very important and recall some of the things that happened on Mount Sinai. This is Deuteronomy chapter 9, starting in verse 1. The words of Moses, Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 9.1, You are crossing over the Jordan today to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you, great cities fortified to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Verse 3, Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you, As, would you note it, a consuming fire. He will destroy them and he will subdue them before you, so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly, just as the Lord has spoken to you. Verse 4. Do not say in your heart, when the Lord, uh, when the Lord your God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. This is good for your friends who wonder why God instructed them to destroy these cities. They were uh, very wicked. It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you. 
in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 6. Know then, it is not because of your righteousness, notice the repetition, that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. Politically correct language, as you can tell. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you left the land of Egypt until you arrived at this place. You have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, which is the mount of God, and uh, most scholars believe that Sinai is least in the mountain range of Horeb, but it's often synonymous for Mount Sinai. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he would have destroyed you. Nine. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant which the Lord had made with you, then I remained on the mountain forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, which, by the way, is miraculous. And the Lord gave me the two tables of stone or tablets of stone written by the finger of God. And on them were all the words which the Lord had spoken with you at the mount from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And it came about at the end of 40 days and nights that the Lord gave me the two tables or tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Verse 12. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go uh, go down from here quickly, for your people, I know, I love how God calls them now, your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made a molten image for themselves. You remember the calf. The Lord spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. And I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain while the mountain was burning with fire. And the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I saw that you had indeed sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourself a molten calf and you had turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. And I took hold of the two tablets and threw them from my hands and smashed them before your eyes. And I fell down before the Lord as at the first forty days and nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all your sin, which you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And so... As you look at this account where Moses recalls um, what happened on the burning mountain that day. It was a radical scene. If you go over to the book of Exodus, we'll look at it now. But there was a mountain that was literally, there were flames and smoke and the presence of God came down on that mountain. And as incredible as everything was that happened to the children of Israel through this sojourn in the wilderness, we're now in Exodus 19 starting at verse 1. As incredible as his power was, his manifestation of the pillar of fire by night, the glory cloud by day, yet the children of Israel so quickly forget. They forgot. They Even when they made the golden calf, they announced, this is your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they made something which was worshipped in the... Uh, in the pagan nations, the, the calf, the bull, that which represented false gods and Baal worship and everything else. And they attributed the success of their deliverance from Egypt to a idol. 
And I guess in many ways, while we don't make golden calves today and bow down to them, we certainly sometimes attribute our success and sometimes the place in where we are to our own thoughtfulness or IQ or uh, whatever else we might, uh, we might want to give credit to. And uh, these are the things that I think can parallel uh, what the children of Israel did in their own sojourn. So let's look at Exodus 19. And I find it very difficult to not move around, but uh, I broke my microphone again and Oscar has to fix it for about the 10th time. <laughs> oh, is, is it done? It's over. It's kaputz. So anyway, oh man, I'm going to be stationary now. But uh, So pray for my microphone. But here we go. Exodus 19. <laughs> In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Now Moses has ended up on Mount Horeb, uh, called in Exodus chapter 3, the mountain of God. And you might remember that when uh, Moses left Egypt, he ended up in a place called Midian. And there he became a shepherd of the flocks of Jethro. And one night Moses was out shepherding the flock and uh, he had to remember his staff in his hand and he saw a great sight up on the mountain. Do you remember what it was? It was a bush that was burning but yet not consumed. And he saw the flame, he saw this glorious sight, so he went to check it out. And as he checked it out, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 3 that the angel of the Lord, we believe Jesus Christ, was in the midst of the bush. He spoke to Moses from the bush, gave him his marching orders, his first call to go back to Egypt. And remember, we saw that whole thing unfold where Moses was making many excuses about why he was not the man. And God kept saying, you are the man. He said, I'm not the man. I don't know if you know, but I can't do this and I can't. You're the man, Right. God actually got angry with Moses because he tried to make so many excuses. And so finally, Moses gets his marching order. Don't forget that there's a burning bush. There's fire up there, not consuming the bush. And Moses is told to go. And he says, this is going to be a sign to you, Moses. Remember, we pondered this sign. When it's all said and done, you are going to come back to this mountain, you and Israel, and you will worship me at this mountain. And so now in Exodus 19, we have the fulfillment of the promise. Things have come full circle from the time of Moses' call to go to Egypt, to return back to the mountain of God, to worship God. And here is where God planned all along to bring the commandments to his people. And so Moses has indeed come full circle. And God reminds him in verse 4 as he approaches God now, probably on one of the low uh, peaks of the mountains, God being up on the summit. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, this imagery of eagles' wings is beautiful imagery. It's a reminder of God's tender love for the people of Israel. And uh, if you've ever seen anything about eagles, I don't know a ton about eagles, but I do know that when they release their young from their nest, they will uh, watch over them very closely. There's, this is a picture of a powerful um, creature that takes care of its young. And as a matter of fact, uh, I'm, I read in some places where the eagle will actually fly below 
the uh, young eagle who's trying to learn how to fly. And as the mama eagle flies below the baby eagle, if the eagle gets in trouble and it's going down, it can land on mama's wings and uh, rest and, and find refuge. And this is the picture. God is painting the picture that you were in Egypt, you were in the house of slavery, and I came in like an eagle, swooped in there, and I rescued you. And I took you on my back, and I carried you. In Isaiah 53, we're told that Jesus Christ bore our sins and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him uh, smitten by God, uh, stricken by God, smitten and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus bore us on his back, if you will. He bore our sins and transgressions, and he swooped into the slave market of sin, Egypt, which represents the world, and saved us and pulled us out. And I don't know why he did it for me. Um, I don't know why he loves me the way he does, but he swooped in like that eagle and saved me. And so God reminds uh, Moses of this. I came in with eagle's wings and saved, saved you. Deuteronomy 39, uh, 9 through 12, just listen to it. It says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land, in the howling waste of a wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign God with him. God did it all by himself. He says, I'm responsible for your deliverance. And I'm going to set the stage by first telling you, Moses, or reminding you what I did and how I showed you my power. And how, I think even a reference to that burning bush, how I first appeared to you and I told you what was going to happen. I told you if you would trust me, I would bring you back here. And some of you tonight need to hear that. Because sometimes, you know, when we're crossing through the wilderness, uh, we know God's made some promises to us. And God says, if you'll just trust me, I'll bring you back to the place I told you I was going to bring you. Just trust me. And sometimes things get a little shaky in this world and we get a little shaky. And God says, no, I'm like that eagle. Every time you start flapping those wings and you think that you're going to crash and burn, I'm there. I'm there to grab you. I'm there to save you. So this is what God did for the people of Israel. And he says now, and notice that the command always follows grace. And it's true for our lives too. Um, God's going to command something now, but he first told them what he did for them. He first said, look, This is what I did to rescue you. Now I'm going to tell you how to live in response to that. And that's really how it works for us who are Christians tonight. It's it's not that God asks something from us first. The first thing he did was save us. Now he asks us to live in response to that in gratitude. And so he says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant, then you shall be my own possession. One translation, the New King James says, You shall be a special treasure to me. And among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. A couple things just to note here. God calls Israel his own possession, his special treasure. Notice among all, keyword all the the peoples, for all the earth is mine. I'm not just a desert God. I'm not just some localized deity. 
I could have chosen from any people group in the world, but I chose you, Israel. And I'm the God of all the earth. Everything in the universe is mine. But I decided to choose you. Have you ever wondered about that? Why God chose you from all the people? Six billion people in the world. Only, uh, And I think we're being a little gracious to say one-sixth of the world today is Christians. I don't know if that's true or not. But that means that five-sixths of the world is not saved, but you are. God made you his treasure. God made you his special possession. He chose you from the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless um, in him in love. Uh, One uh, verse says in Colossians that he made you to be unaccusable before the Father. No one's going to condemn you or accuse you because you're holy in his sight. So that's an awesome thing. You are God's treasure. You are precious in the sight of God. And that is an awesome thought. Peter um, uses some similar language. If you want to hold your finger in Exodus and turn to 1 Peter, notice what Peter says about this. 1 Peter 2, it's all the way in the back of your New Testament. you almost got to get to the book of Revelation. Pass up Hebrews. You'll get to 1 Peter chapter 2. And the big fisherman is talking about things that are precious. And isn't it awesome that even though he was a big fisherman, uh, the word precious became a part of his vocabulary. As a matter of fact, a big part of it. I don't know about you, but after uh, before I became a Christian, I was a little hardened and cynical and uh, acted a certain way. And words like precious entered into my vocabulary after I became a Christian. <laughs> God has a way of softening us and making us see ourselves for who we really are. And so the big fisherman, who was a man's man, says this, 1 Peter 2, 4, And coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This precious value, there it is again, then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. But by contrast now, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers just passing through, remember, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. God has chosen you and he chose you and he was gracious to you. Now he says in response to that choice, uh, because I have made you my treasure, I want you to live in response to that. I want you to live a holy life because I've called you holy, because I've made you holy, because I've set you aside as holy. Now we all know tonight that that's a process. We all know that we are pursuing holiness. 
without which uh, the writer of Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. And we know that God imputes righteousness to us, but he is working on our holiness. And we don't hear a lot of messages in the church today about holiness. But holiness, in essence, is to live a life set apart unto the Lord. Holiness is to be like our Lord in conduct and character and integrity. It is to walk, 1 John 2, 6, in the same manner as he walked. Be ye holy, we're told earlier in Peter, for I am holy. Now, God does not expect us to be perfect, and we've talked about that from messages earlier, because we can't be perfect. But he does expect us to be growing in holiness, to be pursuing holy conduct and godly character. Those are things that from our flesh do not come naturally. Those are things that will flow from a life consecrated to the things of God. And so God reminds them, this is what I've done for you. And he says, now, I want you to live this way. I want you to keep my covenant, Exodus 19. And so he makes this promise to them, which ties to what we just read in First Peter. Go back to Exodus 19. Look at verse 6. He says, uh, telling Moses now the words that he is to share with the people of Israel. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, you remember. They were supposed to tell other nations how to come and know the living God. But unfortunately for Israel, when they encountered other nations, instead of them being a light to those nations, those nations often corrupted Israel. Israel would come in contact with a pagan nation and that pagan nation would somehow influence them so that they would begin to worship their gods and begin to give credit to their gods and worship their gods alongside the God of Israel. And God said in one of the first commandments that we're going to see in the very next chapter, you shall have no other gods before me. This is one of the uh, commandments that God says is very important to him. He doesn't want spiritual infidelity. And yet, every time Israel got into uh, company with those whom they were supposed to be a light to, they went down. They were uh, unduly influenced by these people. And before we uh, you know, point the bony righteous finger at Israel, we know that oftentimes that's true for us too. Uh, we're supposed to be a light to people, but sometimes we get around certain people and we're nothing but a light. Um, but that's what God calls us to be. Now, of course, not to shine our own light, but to shine, as we said, Sunday, his light. So Moses, verse 7, came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Have you ever said that before? Lord, I give you my heart, right? Give you my soul. And we, we sing the songs, right? I live for you alone. And we sing it. But then when Monday comes, it's not so easy, is it? I've been listening to one guy who said that when we sing songs in church, we ought to really analyze the words that we're singing. Because in singing to the Lord, we're saying that to the Lord. I live for you alone. Every breath that I take, you know, every word I say, whatever the song says, right? We are consecrating ourselves to the Lord. And I believe the Lord takes that seriously. 
Now, he knows the intention of our heart is to live for him. Sometimes we find that other law, as we've talked about in Romans chapter 7. The thing I want to do, I find myself not doing. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing I want to do, I find myself not doing. The thing that I hate, I find myself doing. Oh, how we need his power. But the people said, we'll do it, we'll do it. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord, verse 10, also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. This is one of those things people get ready Jesus is coming. And in this case, he's coming to Mount Sinai. And so God said, Moses, I'm coming on the mountain. And I want to tell you that you better get the people ready. Tell them to wash up. Tell them to consecrate themselves. First John 3 tells us, Everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. What's the hope? The hope of the second coming. Everyone who has the hope of the resurrection in Jesus Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. So in essence, Exodus 19, 10 is an allusion, or John is alluding at least back to the principle that we need to prepare ourselves for the return of the Lord. And so the Lord says to Moses, you tell the people to wash their garments, make them clean, And verse 11, let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go on the mountain or touch the border of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Wow. Get ready, wash your clothes, people get ready because the Lord's coming down to Sinai. And when he comes, I want you to put some borders up and, you know, put put a couple signs up. Beware. Now, this is not the sign that we're used to. Beware of dog. This is the sign in in Exodus 19. Beware of God. Because if you cross that barrier, if you touch that holy mountain and... God God says, don't traverse it, don't transgress it. Guess what? You're going to die. That's how holy God is. Now, there is no difference, folks, between the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The only reason that we have open access, that we can traverse the border and come into the Holy of Holies, is by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so many people today have a false notion that God is some buddy up in yonder places that we can just say, hey, hey, what's going on? No, 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 no. God is indeed our uh, a lo- the lover of our soul. We are even called friends of God, but we're not to trifle with God either. He is utterly holy. He is uh, a consuming fire. He lives, 1 Timothy 6, in unapproachable light. I mean, we're talking about a radical being here who can speak things into existence. And yet a God who loves us so much, as we mentioned before, that he condescended to die that we might live. And so what's this whole scene all about? What is God trying to do with the people of Israel? Well, 
We're going to cheat on this test a little bit because Exodus 20 tells us what God was trying to do. So look at Exodus 20, verse 18. We're going to look ahead a little bit. Exodus 20, 18. Why did God appear in this way? Exodus 20, 18, And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet, Exodus 20, 18, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance and said, Moses, you go first. No, it actually doesn't say that. It says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us lest we die. Uh, Moses, could you just go talk to him and bring back the message? We, would, we don't want to meet him. <laughs> we, we, we've seen enough from a distance. Right? And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. <laughs> yeah, sure, don't be afraid. You know, you, you've settled this whole thing. We're still working through it, right? For God has come in order to test you. And in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not... What's that last word? Sin. You mean he came down on that mountain to stamp something in their hearts that they wouldn't forget? Yes. What was he trying to say? I am holy, so you be holy. You see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to tell you that you represent me in the earth. That this is who I am. And we're going to see that dark clouds surrounded this glory and God did not even unmask the fullness of His glory. Because if He had done that, Moses would be dead and everybody else would be dead on that mountain. So somehow God gave them a little taste on that mountain like He's done in other places of the Bible like the Mount of Transfiguration. And He said, take a hard look. This is your God. I am the God of the universe. I spoke this world into existence. I have chosen you and I'm telling you, keep my commandments. Represent me well in the earth. I saved you for a purpose. I didn't call you out of Egypt just so you could go back to your old slavery lifestyle. I called you to a different life. I am your God. You are my people. You're precious to me, but I'm calling you to live for me. And so this was the purpose so that the people would fear the Lord, fear Him in a good way, and live a holy life. So back to verse 13 in uh, Exodus 19, talking about the person who touches the mountain, no hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, verse 13, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So God says, Basically, you wait for that ram's horn to sound and until it sounds, you are not coming up here. There are ways to do this. And until the trumpet sounds, you cannot come up. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says the Lord himself will descend with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and then the dead in Christ shall rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words you remember Paul says this is the sign when that trumpet blast comes the Lord's going to descend and you're going to come up and meet the clouds in the air and it's going to be a radical moment as a matter of fact Jesus tells us that the uh, sky is going to be dark and the stars will fall from heaven and then the glory of the Lord will appear in that darkened sky and people will be singing, Get ready, He's coming. 
But you wait for that trumpet blast and you purify yourself as he is pure because the Lord's coming down and you're coming up to meet him. See, this is the picture. Carries all the way through the Bible. Don't you love the way the Bible works and the Holy Spirit put it together? Incredibly, this particular trumpet blast that's mentioned in verse 13 is not a trumpet that was played by an Israelite. There's somebody else playing this trump. And we can only conjecture here, but we know from several places in the Bible that up on Mount Sinai, God wasn't the only one there. We are told in other places that myriads of angels were on Sinai that day. And so somehow, uh, God and the angels, if you will, took an elevator trip down. And the angels were in the midst of Sinai. As a matter of fact, we're told in Galatians 3.19, in the book of Acts, that the law was given through the mediation or the agency of angels. So it appears that God handed the law to angels and angels handed, handed the law to Moses. But up on that mountain, there was so much glory and radiance because God had come down, but the angelic hosts who surround his throne apparently were there as well. Myriads of angels were up. As a matter of fact, in uh, Psalm sixty-eight seventeen, it says, the chariots of God speaks of his great heavenly host are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them at Sinai in his holiness. Psalm sixty-eight seventeen. And so the law came through the mediation of angels and this radical scene on, up on Mount Sinai is a picture of the glory of God and the heavenly hosts. And so Moses, verse 14, went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day and do not go near a woman. Now, if you want a reference, you can write down Leviticus fifteen sixteen through 18. Uh, the reference is to know... Uh, intimacy and even marital relationships and there's some uh, uh, purification laws that tie to that you can look that up yourself and so it came about on the third day verse 16 when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled I don't know if you can get a picture of what's going on here but if you were in that camp that day and you saw that radical glory of God, fire, smoke, loud trumpet, I don't know how loud it was, <laughs> but it was incredible, what would you be doing? Would you be trembling? You know, every time we see somebody, even see an angel in the Bible, they fall down on their face. And so this scene is a radical scene. Deuteronomy 31, 1 through 3, listen to it. It says, Now this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. And he said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on, on them from Seir. He shone from Mount Param and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All thy holy ones are in thy hand and they follow in thy steps. Everyone receives of thy words. And so Moses references again the scene with all these angels up on Mount Sinai and God in the midst and the law was given. The people are trembling. In verse 17, Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Here we go. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And I bet their prayer life was really improving at that point. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. 
and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Imagine what a cool dude you think Moses was by now. And Moses says something all of a sudden. Radical stuff. And, you know, people have often commented that uh, thunder is the angels bowling. Well, they were up on the mountain. I don't think they were bowling, though, so never mind. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai, verse 20, to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Boy, I don't know what this looks like, folks, but I have images in my head of fire and smoke and angels singing in the presence of God, and Moses is walking up this thing. I mean, just radical stuff. And so here's Moses going up, and the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down, warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Don't even have them come up and try to look at me. That's how holy God is. And also let the priests, you think the priests have one up on the people, who come near to the Lord, consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou didst warn us saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. And then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, and you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. And so Moses went down to the people and told them. Radical, radical stuff, isn't it? In this particular uh, passage that we have. And... um, It's just incredible to me that as we look at the holiness of God tonight, as we look at this scene where he descends on Mount Sinai, there's some things that we can remember. And we've kind of pointed them out, but let's just go back through them for a second. First of all, God reminded Moses of his call. He kept his promise and Moses ended up with all those people. Remember, there's probably a couple million people at the base of this mountain. God's kept his promise. I told you if you followed me, I'd bring you back here to worship. So number one for you tonight, God keeps his promises, but keep following him. Keep doing what he's called you to do, and he will bring you into that place of beautiful worship with him. Number two, after he reiterates his promises, his grace to us, he does call us to holiness. And he says, tell the people to consecrate themselves, purify themselves. So we need to remember that we are to live a holy life. That's number two. Because God has called us to holiness. And when we get a picture of who God is, it should motivate us to live a holy life. When we realize how radical our God is, how powerful he is. Number three, God said, I'm coming, so tell the people to wash their garments. Now, we don't know. We... Some of us have different views about the end times, but ultimately we know that we should be prepared because the Lord could come in our lifetime. The Lord could descend with the shout and with the trump of the uh, the shout of the archangel and the trump of God, it could come. And if it comes, we ought to purify ourselves, even as He is pure. Now it will come. It could come in our lifetime. But we also know, folks, that we're all going to pass from this life if Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime. So that should motivate us to holy living as well. Now remember the boundary that was set up. Interesting word for the boundary could be tied to the word transgression. And this whole mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, is the mountain where what was given? The law was given. Now, the law always has a boundary. And the reason is, is because you and I break the law all the time. 
Because the law doesn't just look at our outward activity, but it even looks at the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. So we're all guilty before God. And there's that barrier. And it says, beware of God. It says, don't cross over. Because if you gaze at me in your unholy condition, you're going to die. Now, Mount Sinai is a, in many ways, a frightful place. Because all the people that were there were trembling. And Moses even says in Deuteronomy and quoted in Hebrews that he was afraid that day. But here's the good news. That even though this is true and the mountain of the law looks overwhelmingly too much for us. Remember I told you in the book of Hebrews there's another mountain. And let's point to Mount Moriah now. Because there is the place that Jesus Christ fulfills the righteous requirements that we cannot fulfill. There is where in in the uh, life of Jesus Christ we find the perfect fulfillment of the law. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He lives the perfect life that we could never live. He dies on the cross to pay the punishment for our sins, all the transgressions, all the times we've crossed that barrier, if you will. And he rises from the dead to bring us life. And so now, even though Mount Sinai is so radical that we can't even gaze upon God, because of the work of Jesus Christ, one day we will see him face to face. One day we will look upon the face of our Savior. We will see God in all of his glory because we won't be in our fallen condition anymore, but we'll be in a new resurrected body. And there we will gaze upon our Lord and we will not have to fear dying because there will be no fear there because perfect love casts out fear and we'll be in the presence of Almighty God because of Jesus Christ. The Mount of Mercy is there. But can you understand how The modern philosophy of people is so wrong in light of Exodus 19. I think I'm good enough. I think I can cross the barrier and I can hang out with God and I'll tell him why I didn't believe in him. You see, I'm going to stand before this all-consuming fire, this glory that he didn't even reveal the fullness of it, where myriads of angels bow down before him night and day and sing, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And I'll come before him and I'll say, Lord, well, you know, you just didn't, you didn't give me enough evidence. Uh, well, I didn't believe you existed, so that's why I didn't come. Uh, you know, Lord, I was busy and, you know, I had my things to do. Can you imagine approaching Mount Sinai that way? The Israelites didn't even want to get near God. They were so afraid When they saw just a glimpse of the holiness of God, they said, no way, you go talk to him, right? But people have such this false notion of who God is. You remember in the movie, The Wizard of Oz, the the well-intended wizard is behind the curtain trying to make the lightning and flashing and trying to make the cowardly lion more cowardly, you know. Well, this is a God whom in reality... Lightning flashes and thunder and smoke are just a small sampling of who he is. When you talk to people today, don't buy into the ignorance of people who think that God is some chum in the sky with a long white beard whom I can sit down and, you know, I can state my case. No, 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 no. If you try to stand Isaiah 64, 6 before the Lord of glory in the so-called righteous works that you have done, They are like filthy rags before the Lord. He is so utterly 
holy. He does not grade on a curve. If you come into the presence of God and you try to stand before this awesome God in your own so-called righteousness, you will perish. Do you see who this God is? He is holy, folks. He is not to be trifled with. But, you know, the good news for the Christian is we are not going to have to go to Sinai. Now, if Jesus didn't come upon your death or the second coming, Sinai is where you were headed. You were headed before a God that, was an, that is an all-consuming fire to stand before him and you would have been wiped out. But because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand how significant his work is? You're going to stand before this God and incredibly, he's going to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The psalmist says, at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy in his presence. What makes the difference between Sinai and Zion? Oh, one thing. The cross of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ, at the cross, took the holy wrath of God upon himself. Why did the sky grow dark that day? Why did Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on his back, like that eagle, he bore our sins and carried our sorrows. He was hung upon that tree and became a curse for us because the law would have cursed us. But he became a curse for us that we might in him become the righteousness of God. So on that day, you don't have to be afraid. On that day, you don't have to say like the world, I'm afraid to die. Because Hebrews 2 tells us that's the fear of man. Man is afraid to die. Why is he afraid to die? Dr. Martin was in the airport one day. Ran into Muhammad Ali. So Dr. Martin was a fight fan, but he was also an on-fire evangelist. Evangelist. So he saw... Muhammad Ali at the airport and said, ah, an opportunity. So he went up to Ali and he says, look, look, he says, I, I'm a fight fan, but I don't want your autograph and I don't want an interview. And Ali said, ah, refreshing. And he said, but we do have a mutual friend, Dr. Martin knew Rocky Marciano. Used to have some late night spaghetti dinners with him, I guess. And so he said, yeah, we have a mutual friend, Rocky Marciano. And uh, so he began to talk about the rock and he had a right hand that could just lay you out with one punch. And so he talked to Muhammad a little bit about Rocky and he said, oh yeah, if I ever fought him, I'd be on my bicycle. I'd be getting away, moving and jabbing, right? And so as the conversation moved on, Dr. Martin noticed that in his hand, he held the Koran. And so Muhammad said to Dr. Martin, well, I'm reading this here. What do you think of this book? And Dr. Martin, his politically correct style, said, I don't think much of it. He said, well, uh, do you believe in hell? Dr. Martin said, yes, I do. Why? Because Jesus Christ talked more about hell than he did about heaven. And I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Dr. Martin witnessed to him that day. 
I don't know where Muhammad Ali is today with the Lord. But I'll tell you what. The world's conception of God is afar off, my friends. There's only two mountains. One is Sinai and one is Zion. And the difference in your eternal destiny will be whether or not you have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, the wrath he took, the perfect life he lived, the wrath he took at the cross for you, and his glorious resurrection from the dead that Easter Sunday morning. And if you've trusted in him, and this is, I know you all have, but this is what we need to tell people, you will be saved. But if you try to approach God on that day, and you are not cloaked in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then it's Sinai. And I'll tell you what, there's going to be a lot of people on Judgment Day trembling. That's pretty serious, isn't it? But this is a serious account, isn't it? God doesn't pull any punches here. He says, this is who I am. Warn the people. Tell them, don't cross that barrier. But you know how you can cross, don't you? You've crossed from death to life because you have believed in Jesus Christ. You've crossed over. You don't have to go to Sinai. As a matter of fact, I think for many of us, we took one peek at Sinai and ran as quick as we could to Zion. (laughs) No, I don't want that mountain. I'm in deep trouble with that one. Because I know I've broken so many laws. But the good news is, Jesus Christ paid it all. And one day when I pass from this life, I'm going to stand before this holy and righteous and awesome God. And he's going to say, come in. Michael, I love you. You are my precious treasure. Look at my hands. I did this for you. And I'm going to say, Lord, I'm just a trophy of your grace. Thank you so much. And throughout the eons of time, Ephesians chapter 2, we will forever be rejoicing in the grace that's found on Mount Moriah, the cross. Amen? That's the good news. But don't forget, your God is holy. And so when you go tell the world, make sure that if you do use Sinai, just use it to tell people, look, Sinai is bad news, but there's some really good news. You don't have to go face God. Not of yourself. You can come through Jesus Christ. You better know his son, though. Amen. Well, Lord, we're so grateful. Many times in church, um, we celebrate all the good things and we look at the accounts of uh, the ministry life of Jesus and there's some serious things in there, but Lord, there's not too many things that we run into like Exodus 19 that show us the utter holiness and righteousness of our God. Indeed, Lord, you are holy. You are a consuming fire. Yet, Lord, it's even beyond our imagination to understand that that God, three in one, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would become a man. The Son would become human and pay the price, pay the penalty for us to bring us to God to bring us to that place of mercy, that mountain of mercy. For the Jews in in the writer of Hebrews' time, so many of them were trying to go back to the law. I'll go back to the sacrifices. I'll go back to the blood of the animal. And the writer warned them, if you do that, you're in trouble. 
There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How that hits home when we see who you really are, Lord. And so we just want to uh, humble ourselves before your mighty hand. You are opposed to the proud, but you indeed give grace to the humble. So we humble ourselves under your mighty hand, Father, that you may exalt us at the proper time. We cast every anxiety upon you because you care for us. Thank you that you're the lover of our souls. Thank you that, Jesus, you took the walk to the cross so I wouldn't have to take that walk and face God without your righteousness. Thank you that you walk the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows, the way of the cross, that you were trampled and abused and took the wrath of God for me so I could be holy and righteous before you. I don't know what else to say, Lord, other than thank you. And with the gratitude from the bottom of my heart, and I know everybody else here, we say, thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.